0: This talk was given by Roshi Rafe Martin, guiding teacher of the Endless Path Zendo, a lay Buddhist community in Rochester, New York. Join our practice in person or online at EndlessPathZendo.org. Today is Saturday, October 28, 2023. Uh, this morning we have our annual Hungry Ghost Ceremony as we are just around the corner essentially from uh, halloween and in order to put this in a somewhat different context or maybe to return to the kind of context that halloween itself began with uh, we'll look at the nature of ghosts in buddhist tradition and how this relates to our own practice of being fully human so mythologically speaking pretas that's what ghosts are called hungry ghosts so live in one of the six realms of buddhist tradition which are devas gods human beings uh, warring spirits um, animals pretas ghosts and hell dwellers of the six realms so they're in a realm in classical buddhism and they're said to have very small mouths very thin necks and distended bellies like impossibly full-grown, starving children. Uh, This dramatic image shows that uh, such beings, by childishly, selfishly, and greedily, desiring and compulsively, compulsively, endlessly wishing only for what they don't have, and given their tiny mouths and throats, can never actually eat digest or make nourishing use of have condemned themselves to tormented toxic lives. That's the classical Buddhist view. Now Zen Buddhism sees this more intimately. Here's a quote from Yasutani Roshi uh, that's in the three pillars of Zen. It's in his commentary on the koan-mu, the first koan, does a dog have Buddha nature, in the Gateless Barrier, a woman kwan. He says, in a sense, human beings are ghost-like, since most of us cannot function independent of money, social standing, honor, companionship, authority, or else we feel the need to identify ourselves with an organization or an ideology. If you would be a person of true worth and not a phantom, you must be able to walk upright by yourself, dependent on nothing. When you harbor philosophical concepts or religious beliefs or ideas or theories of one kind or another, you too are a phantom, for inevitably you become bound to them. Only when your mind is empty of such abstractions are you truly free and independent. So to go on from there, the path to wholeness is before us every day. An introductory koan challenges us to save a ghost. And in the Dokson room, we must demonstrate an appropriate answer to this fundamental challenge. We don't save a ghost, who are not evil beings so much as tormented ones. By reaching out as in, oh, you poor thing, here, let me help you. It's not that we're so privileged and above the mess, safely out of the mix. We start with becoming unghostly ourselves. To help hungry, suffering ghosts, we ourselves must mature beyond the compulsive drives of unfulfilled wants and self-centered desires. Today, in our annual Halloween Time Hungry Ghost Ceremony, we will offer dharma food and drink and healing energies to help bring ease and release to all caught in ghostly realms, ourselves included. Ourselves included. How to be a genuine human being and not a ghost. Ironically, to explore this, I'm going to share with you very brief retellings of three Jataka tales, two of which, in two of which the Buddha isn't even a human being, but is an animal. But these tales show the way of the Bodhisattva, a being consciously choosing to mature beyond unconscious, habitual clinging to concepts of self-centeredness. Of me in here and everything and everyone else out there. Of course, one can become ghostly by clinging to concepts of what a bodhisattva is as well. We are included always in ceremonies releasing ghostly beings from suffering. My hope is that by telling you versions, very truncated versions. Of these tales, a visceral sense of how we might live in an unghostly or less ghostly way ourselves will kind of get encouraged. In fact, how we might also help hungry beings who are not evil beings, but themselves suffering and tormented. How we might go about this. I think these stories, which are now 2,600 years old at least, touch base with, uh, and make uh, dramatically present. So the first jataka, the one that I see, is actually most central to us all today is the story of the brave little parrot. So if you don't know how the story goes, let me relate a very brief way of telling it. Long ago, the bodhisattva, that is the Buddha in a past life, was a little parrot. In my retelling of it, which, the way I've done it for many years, I've made the little parrot female. Uh, You may agree or disagree with that, but that's how I've seen her, them. So, uh, the little parrot lives happily in a green forest and one day she smells smoke and realizes that her forest is burning. Of course, if you know Buddhist tradition, you know that the Buddha gave a fire sermon in which he said, our world is on fire with the flames of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Uh, Obviously, uh, the Buddha saw things 2600 years ago that we are experiencing right now in our world. The world is on fire. The little parrot smells the smoke and she's a bird, so she can fly away. No problem. She starts flying, but she's not irresponsible. Uh, and so in order to uh, be helpful to those who are trapped by the fire, or caught in it or might get free of it yet, she calls out, fire, fire, run to the river, as she flies over the burning forest. She's doing her job. She's doing what she can to help others. Very good. And then as she flies, she looks down and she sees below her many of the animals are already uh, surrounded by flame. There's no way they can reach the river. And she sees that many of the great trees of the forest, trees that have been at home, that have supported uh, her and other birds for countless years, are surrounded by flames. How can a tree escape fire? And suddenly, She sees something she can do, a little thing that she can do in the face of the great tragedy of her time. And she flies to the river, but instead of flying over it to freedom herself, she dips her body and her wings in the water, and then she turns around and flies back over the burning forest. And over the very heart of the blaze, she shakes her feathers and the few drops of waters that water that still remain, uh, clinging to her, fall and tumble into the fire and evaporate and she flies back to the river. So back and forth she goes from the fire to the river, from the river to the fire. In time her feathers become charred, her eyes are red as flame, she's coughing and choking, but she continues on, persevering, persisting. Now, at this time, some of the gods are flying by high overhead in their ivory cloud palaces and, you know, doing what gods do, eating, drinking, laughing, talking, luxuriating. And one of them happens to look down and sees the little parrot flying through the flames. And he goes, look at that ridiculous bird trying to put out a raging forest fire with a few sprinkles of water. And other gods and goddesses look and say, ridiculous, absurd, and they go back to their golden bowls and silver cups and their food and drink, laughing and talking, at their cocktail party in the sky. And that one god is, eh, more can be done. So he transforms himself into a great eagle, flies down to where the little parrot is. Flying through the flames and in a majestic, godlike voice, he says, Turn back! Turn back, little bird! It's foolish, crazy. You can't put out a raging forest fire with a few sprinkles of water. Turn back and save yourself before you tumble into the flames and die. It's all useless. Stop it. But the little parrot basically says, I don't need advice like that. I just need someone, others, to pitch in and help. And she continues flying, and it's too much for the god, the heat, the fire, the smoke. He banks and rides up on a thermal up, up to the cooler air above, and there he is, just below his fellow gods and goddesses, who are still laughing and talking and eating and drinking, and down below he sees a little parrot still flying through the flames, and he's really suddenly, He's never felt like this before in his always oh, his eternal godlike life, godly life. He's moved. Uh, and all at once he just doesn't care about being a god anymore above it all. He just wants to be like that little parrot, really brave, courageous, selfless. Do something! He said, we're gods after all, we should do something. And moved by these strange new emotions, he began to weep and tears just pour from his eyes like rain on the forest, on the parrot, on all the uh, trees, the animals. And because those are the tears of a god, wherever they fall, the fire goes out, uh, everything's healed, uh, rain is like dripping from the still scorched branches, and green grass starts growing, and buds and blossoms open, and the little parrot washed by those tears is whole and well, and her feathers grow in now. When she was a gray parrot to start with, her feathers grow in the color of red as flame, yellow as sunlight, blue as a river, and green as a forest, and she's become a beautiful bird, and all the forest is saved. Logic can never explain what wholehearted effort doing the one little thing we can do, how that might change everything. Logic can never predict it. And this, of course, is the essence of our own work in practice, as we are practicing now, in a burning world. Do the one little thing of attending to this breath, this koan, this count. And it helps not only us, but affects everything. It has effects logic can't measure. Each drop of water, each tiny drop of clear attention we can gain through practice, opens space in our world, a world filled with flames of violence and fear and self-centered concerns, opens a path to something more universal. Our practice helps not just us, but others, whether we know it or not, perhaps, There's a moment in someone's mind who might be about to do something horrible where they have the space to think, I won't do that. You can't say what the effect of your practice may be. Small as it is, minuscule as it is, the drops of water you bring through practice have an effect on the world just as much as the world and all its problems has devastating effects on each of us. It's quite mutual, our relationship to the world. Now the second little jātaka that I'd like to share with you is also in the animal realm, but it's the the work of a bodhisattva revealed. And this is the story of the banyan deer, perhaps you know that story. The story of the banyan deer, the Buddha in a past life, was born as a a deer. And they're trapped in a stockade, his herd, and he's the leader of a herd, and another herd because the king likes hunting. And they've trapped the uh, animals, the deer, these two herds in the stockade, the people have because the king's hunting is kind of making their own lives miserable. They don't have time to do their work. And and instead of running through the forest with the king, they decide they'll trap these herds. And then the king can go there and hunt like a stocked fish pond. They don't have to go out and attend to the king's needs all the time. So uh, the Banyan deer, the Buddha in a Past Life, Uh, is in the stockade, and the king says, the leaders of these two herds are magnificent animals. We won't shoot them till the end. Don't shoot them. Meanwhile, other animals every day, a deer is being shot. Uh, One day from the Banyan deer's herd, one day from the uh, other deer king's herd. Uh, The Banyan deer has come up with this plan in order to limit the suffering Because this way, it kind of can be equal. One day, one of the deer steps forward and is shot from one herd. Next day, from the other herd, steps forward. Because before that, arrows were just flying all over the place. And many deer were getting wounded. And this way, the suffering is limited. One day, uh, the lottery, they create a lottery in terms of who out of each herd will go on that one day to be shot for the king's kitchen, uh, the lottery falls on a pregnant doe in the other deer king's herd. And she feels this isn't right. The lottery says only one should die, not two. She's pregnant. She says to her leader, the deer, that's her leader, "Um, I will wait until if you can let me live when my after my fawn is born once my fawn my child is grown enough to be able to live on its own without needing me to give it milk i will go and take my place in the lottery but it's not right that two should die when the lottery says only one and the other king the dear king says too bad the lottery fell on you there's no exceptions you go and stand and get shot so she goes to the banyan deer, the balloon past life, and says the same thing. Uh, the lottery really says, only one deer should die. If I'm shot, two will die. And he says, you're right. I totally believe and trust you that you will go when your time comes, once your fawn is grown. So go away and be at peace. And she runs away happily. And then the banyan deer goes and stands before the uh, king's huntsman because how could he send someone else to take her place? He takes her place. And the, the deer king uh, is standing there, and they run and get the human king and say, Hey, the deer king you freed from the hunt is standing there, and he's going to be shot. So the human king comes and he says, Why are you here? And then the deer king, the boat uh, in a past life, tells the whole story how he's offered himself, because who can take the place? It was his decision, so he'll take the doe's place. And the human king is so moved by the dear king's selflessness. The dear king's selflessness has affected him. He's never had such thoughts before, like the, uh, the great eagle with the brave little parrot. He's never had such thoughts. He's affected by what the Bodhisattva does. He says, my gosh, that is really selfless of you, to care, to care about your subjects so much, even though This other doe isn't even in your herd to care about other beings so much. This is a lesson to me as a king. I've been abusing my people, getting them out there, hunting, doing all this stuff for me while they've not been able to take care of their own lives. I've got a great lesson. This is a great teaching here in order to pay you back for this great teaching. Oh, great being, even though you're an animal, you've taught me so much. I'm going to free you and your herd from my hunt. You go and be free and be at peace. And the banyan deer, the Bodhisattva, says, O king, if I and my herd are free, then the other herd will suffer twice as much. All your arrows will fall on them. They will have no relief. They will know such suffering as cannot be believed. I cannot go and be at peace like you offer me unless they're freed from the hunt too. And the human king is stunned. He's going to have to give up all the hunting of deer that he's got trapped here. His life was so simple. Everything was going so well for him. But he looks at the logic of it, and he sees that the Banyan deer is right. How could he be at peace knowing that his freedom had been bought at the price of causing so much suffering to others? And so he says, okay, Banyan deer, you're right. I see your point i want you to be at peace i really respect what you've taught me about caring about selflessness about leadership so i freed the other herd as well you your people and the other herd of deer i'm going to let them all go now really be free and at peace and the banyan deer says oh human king if we're not hunted then all the other four-footed animals of the forest are in danger they will be hunted so terribly it will be the bloodiness of it will be horrible I cannot be at peace knowing my freedom is bought at the price of their suffering and so the king then releases all the other animals of the forest from the hunt and he says now banyan deer go and be at peace and the banyan deer says how can i be at peace when i think of the suffering that's going to fall on the birds of the forest they're the only ones left for you to hunt now they're next and they will be hunted to extinction it'll be horrible what happened how could i be at peace knowing my freedom was bought at such a price and the human king is just overwhelmed because you're right, you're right. The logic is inescapable. I, I ha- for you to be at peace, I have to give them freedom too and peace. And so he releases all the birds. And finally, he says, now go and be at peace. And the banyan deer says, I wish I could. But now the fish, the fish will suffer so terribly. I can't ever be at peace knowing what's going to happen to them. And in the end, the king releases all the animals from the hunt. No animals in his kingdom will ever be hunted again. Only then can the Banyan Deer, the Buddha in a past life, be at peace. None of us can be at peace in this world until all are at peace. This is a simple truth and our world suffers again and again because we fail to grasp and live up to the simple reality seen by Buddhist tradition 2600 years ago. Until all are free, no one can truly be at peace and free. Finally, the story of King Sivi, in which the Bodhisattva in a past life is a human being and a king. And a pigeon flies into his throne room, and after the pigeon comes a hawk come to catch it. That's why the pigeon is fleeing, because it's escaping from a hawk. So of course, like any one of us, the Buddha in a past life as a king protects the pigeon from the hawk. But the hawk says, if you deprive me of my rightful food, this is quite an ecological story, deep ecology. If you deprive me of my rightful food, I will die and I will suffer. Your solution doesn't work. I eat pigeons. The Bodhisattva realizes by protecting one side and not taking both sides into account, he's not upholding the way. And so he says, okay, I will give you a piece of my own flesh equal in weight to a pigeon. Will that work? And the hawk says, yes, that will work. So they bring in scales and the whole court is in terrible grief. And the Bodhisattva cuts off a piece of his leg flesh equal to the weight of a pigeon and puts it on the scale. And the scale doesn't move. So he cuts again and again until entirely... He puts his whole being on the scale. An incredible metaphor, profound metaphor. Giving little pieces is never going to be enough. As Blake wrote, more, more is the cry of a mistaken soul, less than all. Giving up entirely our self-centered sense of ourselves, at least for a moment, is what we're asked of in our practice. And then to do our best to live from that that vital moment, where all our self-centeredness falls away at least for a moment, once in our life, to really then do our best to live from that. The metaphor is quite profound. More, more is the cry of a mistaken soul, less than all cannot satisfy. In the end, a god reveals himself as having taken the form of both hawk and pigeon to test the bodhisattva will he live by what his deepest insight has revealed or does his wisdom stay conceptual separate from his actual life such tests happen often in the jataka tales and they also happen in our lives will our wisdom stay separate from the way we actually live the things we actually think and do this is our challenge every day in the end What we ourselves give makes the difference, not to change others, not to make them see our view or kill them if they don't, but to make ourselves available to something that opens justice for all. Well, this doesn't mean giving flesh literally, it doesn't mean we feed ourselves to starving tigers as often happens in the Jatakas, literally. It hurts nonetheless, for we must give up cherished views and really listen. This is hard to be present in this way, is to have faith that such openness actually creates a third possibility, a a, or an harmonic, allowing two opposing views to find a new note that harmonizes or aligns them together in some kind of greater synchronicity. What these jatakas show is that the path to wholeness is before us every day, all the time. It begins with this breath, this count, this koan. This is how we become less ghostly ourselves. This is how we become genuine and move from a ghost realm to a human one. The endless path, the name of the Zendo, is no joke, and the way and the challenges of it, of our own maturing, are, let me tell you, going to be endless. And if you think tomorrow is the time to do it, in the words of the great Tibetan Buddhist teacher of the 12th century, Milarepa, if you think tomorrow is the time to practice, you will find that your life has slipped away. It has to be in everything that we do. Pick it up again and again, right where we are, not forcing, not rejecting, but doing our best to be full human beings present, not caught in our own potential ghostliness. So we will stop here and have our ceremony uh, for the hungry, thirsty, ghostly spirits.